my relationship with running and myself was just not in a good place. Like I was in a pretty low place. I didn't have a lot of great relationships in my life. I placed all this importance on running that soured my relationship with it. So that was definitely the the lowest moment, but it also gave me the most perspective and it's informed my perspective now as an athlete. As I said, I've been able to stay healthy for the past 10 plus years. I have a much better relationship with eating food, my body image, but I've been able to use that experience in my coaching and in my writing to help other people who are dealing with similar things. So that lowest low, uh, while I wouldn't wish it upon anyone has also given me a perspective that I, I wouldn't have gotten otherwise. So I'm glad we didn't get like 20 minutes into it before I realized we hadn't hit the record button, but Take two here for AMA, Ask Me Anything. This is Ask Mario Anything. I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and we are trying something new here this week. A couple weeks back in the Morning Shakeout newsletter and on Instagram, I put out a call for questions. I am going to be on the receiving end of the mic for this one. I'm sitting here with Jeff Stern, who is my assistant editor for the Morning Shakeout. He has been handling the social accounts, Instagram and Twitter for the Morning Shakeout recently and reposting some stuff to the website, just generally helped me out with my editorial needs. And he's going to be reading these questions to me that all of you have submitted. So first, I'd like to welcome you, Jeff, to the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Mario. And I've known you for a couple of years now. You're originally from Marin County, where I live, uh, now live in Santa Barbara. You've been running for a couple of years, racing all kinds of distances, did some ultra stuff last year. You've run the Dipsy Race many a time. Recently, you just set a nice personal best at the Wharf to Wharf in Santa Cruz. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Why don't you tell our listeners how you got into running? I started uh, mountain biking at a young age and just kind of carried that over into my 20s and got into road cycling um, and then had a bad crash, uh, which I think is a common uh, theme for most road cyclists. It's not uh, if it's going to happen, but when. And just took all that fitness and put it into running and training the last few years and really have just fallen in love with the new challenge and the new sport and applying a lot of what I learned from kind of my cycling background to ultra running and marathons and, and faster races as well. Growing up in Marin, which is a hotbed for trail and ultra running, were you into the sport at all? Did you run the Dipsy as a kid or was it not until the cycling crash that you really got into the sport of running? You know, I got into running the Dipsy about a decade ago just to stay fit. And as a new challenge, when I discovered that it started a mile from where I grew up, I was like, how did I not do this as a kid? I played mostly ball sports. Um, so it's still kind of relatively new to me. And uh, yeah, I'm just uh, happy to have found it now in life. Even though I didn't get to do it as a kid, I feel like uh, it's still still very kind of a great experience and applicable to where I'm at and from an endurance standpoint. What is it about running that you've grown to love over the last 10 years or so? You know, I compare it to bike riding and bike racing a lot. It's it's so simple, right? You don't really need anything to go running. I mean, the very early runners, uh, you know, back in the day didn't even wear shoes, right? Barefoot runners and a little sarong. So 
compared to something like cycling where you have all this gear and you kind of have to take a lot of time to get ready to go out and exercise, you know, I can decide I want to go for a run and be out the door in five to 10 minutes. And something about that simplicity uh, I really enjoy right now in life. Inaccessibility. You don't have to lug a lot of gear with you. True. (laughs) Uh, My wife does triathlon. You've seen the bikes here in our place. It can be a little bit of a chore to like load those up into the car and have to bring them out and clean them and all of that. So I can totally relate on that level. Well, you've been helping me out with Morning Shakeout here for about a month now um, as of this conversation. What else are you doing with your working time? Uh, I coach some athletes as well. I coach high school cross country at a school in Santa Barbara too. Um, And I also do some freelance consulting work for different brands in the running, outdoor, and cycling spaces. Cool. Well, I've been super appreciative of your help. I'm excited to see the Morning Shakeout continue to grow uh, with your assistance, especially on the social side of things. And we've got some exciting stuff coming up that I will be announcing in the newsletter over the coming weeks. But for now, we are going to roll right into the first Ask Me Anything question. These are not in any particular order. We just sort of compiled them, curated them a little bit, and just going to go through them, I guess, for the next 30 to 60 minutes or so. So whenever you're ready, Jeff, let's roll right into it. Sounds like a plan. All right. First question. How has your life changed for the better and or worse since leaving Competitor Magazine and building your own brand voice in the sport of running? Are there things you miss and or don't miss about working for a national publication versus carving out your own space in the sport? Question is from Caitlin. That's a good question. Um, I've always known that I've wanted to work for myself. I don't know where that entrepreneurial itch came from, but it's always been there. But it didn't really grow into anything until a few years ago. And I left Competitor in June of 2016 to pursue a coaching opportunity with a startup here in the Bay Area. And that ultimately fell through. I'd always done some coaching on the side. And it was at that point that my wife basically gave me an ultimatum and said, you've got a month to figure this out. You've always wanted to hustle and work for yourself and coach and write. If you can figure out how to do that, more power to you. If not, go find a real job. So um, I took advantage of, of that opportunity and hustled really hard to put my time and energy into the things that I really wanted to do. And that was coaching and that was writing. And now eventually, you know, or eventually I should say became a podcast and I'm where I've always wanted to be. It doesn't mean it's easy by any stretch. I mean, I don't get a consistent paycheck every two weeks. So that is definitely a, a stressful thing. There are issues of the newsletter episodes of the podcast that go unsponsored and they go unsponsored. I'm not making any income and that can be stressful. Um, but on the flip side, the positive side of it, I'm in full control. And I think that's what I love about running in general, but that's what I love about being my own boss is my success or failure at this to some degree is on me. And if I'm lazy and I'm complacent, then I'm probably not going to be doing this on my own as my job for, you know, for a while. But if I, you know, if I'm smart, if I'm strategic, if I'm motivated, uh, if I'm innovative, I think I can be doing this for a while. So I like being in control and being able to call my own shots. I mean, the reason the morning shakeout started and it started while I was at competitor is that I had this creative itch that I wanted to scratch. I wanted to be able to write about running 
in such a way and share things that I was personally interested in and excited about that I just couldn't do at competitor. It didn't fit with the content plan and the audience that we were catering to. So it started as, you know, as just a pure passion project on the side, had no business ambitions behind it. And when I got to that moment where I needed to sort of put up or shut up in terms of finding a job, I, I stepped back and I said, all right, well, how do I want to spend my time? And I knew I wanted to coach and that was fairly easy thing for me to scale, just take on some more athletes, but I knew I wanted to write and I wanted to specifically write the morning shakeout. I didn't want to freelance. So I figured out how to turn it into something that could be a monetizable publication, started selling these monthly sponsorships and eventually opened up a Patreon page where my closest supporters can support my work and knock on wood, I've been able to do this is part of my job for the last two plus years. And I feel really fortunate to be in that position. I don't know if that answered Caitlin's question. I mean, I know that I really enjoy it and I'm, I know there's thousands of people out there that do as well. So it makes sense. Uh, the second part of her question was just, are there things that you miss or don't miss about working for a national publication? That's a good question. Yes. I miss to some degree having coworkers. I used to work in an office with the rest of our team, Brian Metzler, my editor-in-chief, Ryan Wood, who was our digital editor. We had designers, photographer, uh, Scott Draper, Steve Godwin was our our video guy. And I'm still in touch with all of those people. We're friends and our relationships have endured beyond our time at Competitor, but I miss that interaction. It's nice having you here because (laughs) most of the time I'm home on my own. you know, writing away. And I talk on the phone with people and stuff, but I, I'm, I'm not in an office and I prefer not to be in an office environment all the time, but it is nice to have that to go to and have that sort of built in network of coworkers and support and just like social interaction that I think is, is really vital. So I do miss, miss that part of it. I have plenty of friends and colleagues who are also in the freelance realm of things who live a very similar lifestyle to me and I stay in touch with them and locally I get together with some of those folks, but it's not easy to align schedules. We're not in the same hallway passing one another. I don't see anyone in the parking lot. We can't meet up for runs before work three or four days a week. So I miss that part of it, but, you know, sacrificing some of those things for the control that I have and the flexibility that I have to do the work that I want to do. And I can decide yes or no on any given day, whether I want to commit to something is something I don't think I could trade back at this point. Something I always say, and I don't know who I heard it from, but time is my most valuable asset. And it seems like you embody that with kind of what you do on a day-to-day basis and definitely appreciate that flexibility as well. Took me a while to learn that. Um, Time is a finite resource, but it's also my most valuable resource. And I've only got 24 hours in the day, just like everyone else does. And I've got to decide how I'm going to use that time. And if I use it well, it can be really fruitful, productive, and enjoyable. And if I don't, it can be really stressful. So I try to manage it as best I can. Awesome. All right. Next question from Matt. What type of shoes have you been digging lately and which ones are you alternating between? Love the shoe question. So I'll preface this answer by saying that Since I graduated from college, I've been fortunate to be in a position. So this is 15 going on 16 years now. I've been fortunate to be in a position where I've either been on a team that has been sponsored by a shoe brand and I would get 
multiple pairs of shoes given to me per year. Then I worked at a running shop where I would get samples of shoes throughout the year. And during my time at Competitor, one of my primary roles was reviewing shoes for the magazine. And multiple times per year, we'd get boxes of samples to test out. So I've always been in a position where I've had multiple pairs of shoes at my disposal. And that has continued through to today when I'm not getting uh, quite as much free shoes from different brands and companies. But I am a big believer in having multiple pairs of shoes in your quiver. And the reason for that and what I found over time, and this is I don't know that this is scientifically proven, but I found that when I'm rotating through different types of shoes for different types of workouts and runs, my risk of injury goes much lower. And I think it's because different types of shoes force you to run in different ways. And it's like a golf bag. You've got different clubs for different types of shots. I've got different types of shoes for different types of workouts. So right now I am just ramping up my training for fall, I'm going to run the New York City Marathon in November. I'll be doing a marathon block. Uh, right now, I'm doing the sort of precursor to that marathon block and just trying to get back a high level of 5K, 10K type fitness I've been getting on the track. So I have been using a pair of New Balance 1500 flats for my track workouts. It's a lower profile shoe. It's pretty snappy, but it offers me a little bit of protection, which I like now. I don't like super thin crazy minimal shoes, but that's enough for me on my faster workouts. Um, my go-to race shoe, which I only use for races is the Nike Vaporfly 4%. I've had a pair of those for over a year now. And that's like my big Bertha driver. I only pull that out of the bag when I'm going to take a big, big swing at something. Um, so I've got that for racing. And then in terms of day-to-day -day runs where I'm not doing a speed workout or something specific, I'm rotating through a bunch of different things right now. I've got a pair of Brooks Launch that I really enjoy. I've got a pretty wide forefoot because I've got this bunion on my right foot and it doesn't fit well into mm. a lot of shoes. I was wearing a pair of Nike Pegasus for a while and the newer ones, the 35s, just weren't touching my foot the right way. So I had to get something with a more generous toe box and um, Brooks shoes have been good for that. So been having a couple pairs of those in my rotation. Uh, I will get on the trail from time to time. And even though I probably don't need a real quote unquote trail shoe for the type of terrain that we have here in Marin County, I do have a pair of Nike Kyger fives that I'm really enjoying that as a complete overhaul of the previous version. It's still lightweight, snappy, but has a bit of protection to it. Almost feels like a road shoe with just some better lugs. So that's been a good one for me. Uh, also have the Nike Wild Horse 5, which has a rock plate in it, is a little sturdier, a bit more cushion to it. I like taking those out for longer runs if I'm going to be on rocky terrain. And what else have I got over there? I'm looking at my... Uh, can't really see my my pile in the corner. Um, I've got a pair of Hoka Mach 2s, I believe they are. A Mach 2? Yeah, Mach 2. And that is a... It's not really beefy. It has a lot of cushion to it, but it's pretty lightweight. There isn't much to the upper. Um, it fits my foot really well because it's wide, and that is my, my shakeout shoe uh, when I'm just going out for some easy untimed, like carefree miles. I like putting that 
shoe on my foot and just rolling down the road. Sounds like a great mix you have going. How about yourself? I'm the same way. You know, I have a a plethora of shoes and I'm always switching them up. Uh, Today I ran in the New Balance uh, Fresh Foam Beacons. It was a little, uh, they have a little bit of a more cushion, really lightweight, um, upper, comfortable, kind of like the Flyknit, um, the Vaporfly. Um, And I put a lot of miles in those. I'm a fan of the Hoka Clifton's. Um, Clifton's been a go-to for me the last several years. Well, I haven't got the new ones yet, but I'm sure I'll pick up a pair soon. I think I'm still in the five. So the old ones, but you know, you find a shoe that works for you and you buy, you know, a couple pairs cause you want it to, to last for a few years. Um, so that one's my shakeout kind of recovery shoe. Um, and then I'm also a fan of the Hoka ATRs. I feel like are a good, the challenger ATR. Yeah. The the challenger ATR. That's like the Clifton for trail. Exactly. Yeah. Um, they both fit my foot really well and it's good for a little bit longer trail days when I'm, when I'm doing ultras and whatnot. Uh, so yeah, those seem to be my, my go-tos. What'd you race Wharf to Wharf in? I do also, um, bust out the big Bertha from time (laughs) to time. Uh, I mean, you you can't lie. They, they make you feel fast once you put them on, especially if you're not wearing them all the time. I mean, I know people that do workouts in them and I feel like that takes away a little bit of that kind of luster and zip that you get when you put them on race day. Not to mention they don't have a very long shelf life. There's only what, I I think 125, 150 miles in each pair of those. And they caught, I mean, I paid 250 bucks for mine. So I'm going to save those suckers for when I really want to use them. But to your point, when you slip those on, you stand in them, you just want to go fast. And I think for me, that's how I approach my shoe selection. When I put on a particular pair of shoes, it puts me in a particular mood for run. When I put on those mocks, I just, I know I'm just going to cruise. I'm probably not going to run hard that day. And that's why I put them on. It just puts me in the right mindset. When I put on those 1500s, I know it's, time to get down to business. I'm going to the track and I'm going to start ripping some laps in them. Otherwise they just, it feels kind of odd. And for me, like having that association has always been really helpful when I'm going out to do my runner workout. Yeah, I agree. Next question from Aaron. What are your thoughts on cross training as a coach? When do you prescribe it? Where is the line between benefiting from it and being exhausted by it, especially in return to running post-injury? Another really good question. I have quite a bit of experience with cross-training as an over-cross-trained athlete in the past. I should add another adjective in there. An injured over-cross-trained athlete. I couldn't run and use cross-training to quote-unquote keep in shape while I was rehabbing my injury. It was a stress fracture. And then as a coach, how I use cross-training in my athletes' programs. And the short answer to that is it depends on the athlete and what we're trying to achieve with the cross training. So I think the most obvious and the first one that I alluded to is cross training as a means of injury rehabilitation. And I think certain forms of aerobic cross training, be it cycling or spinning, um, we could even say I mean, it's running, but Alter G running on a treadmill, uh, elliptical machine or elliptical bike, um, swimming, aerobic form of cross training that is either non or less weight bearing than running can be a great way to maintain aerobic fitness when you're not able to run. And 
pool running, throw that in there as well. I've used that in the past uh, as an athlete. And you can keep your engine pretty finely tuned by doing workouts on any, using any of those modalities. And that can be great, especially if you're off running for a short period of time and you just need to bridge the gap between getting over this nagging little niggle that's not putting you out completely, but is not allowing you to train at a high level and maybe race day. Um, It can be great in those situations when you don't want to risk a more debilitating injury and you're like, okay, let's just back off the running, cross train, maintain fitness, doing that and save the hard efforts for the race itself. In the instance where someone gets, say, a stress fracture, this is where I've been, and you're on the shelf for 6, 8, 10, 12 weeks and you can't run, most runners will go crazy if they can't do anything. Um, In case of a stress fracture or even many soft tissue injuries, you just have to let things rest and let things settle down. And you should and can do enough cross training to maintain some baseline level of fitness. But I think if it's going to be a prolonged period of time, six, eight, 10 weeks, the danger is in actually getting too fit. And this happened to me as a younger athlete dealing with my first stress fracture. I was devastated. I'd never been told I had to take eight weeks off of running before. And I was scared of losing all of this fitness that I had built up over the years and I went crazy in the pool and on the bike. And I'm telling you, if you work hard enough, you can get really, really fit. And the analogy that I like to use is that of a car. My engine was in phenomenal shape. I was doing crazy workouts on the bike and in the pool that like my engine was really finely tuned. My frame could not support the engine once I got back to running um, because I wasn't weight-bearing. I was doing some strength training, but that's only going to get you so far. You've got to give your legs and lungs a chance to catch up to one another. And I made the mistake of not doing that, and then I got hurt right away. So so it's you're most vulnerable after, or a lot of athletes are most vulnerable after periods of prolonged cross training where they've been at it pretty hard. They haven't been able to run. And then when they are able to run, they're just, they're like too fit. So one thing I'm really careful of with my athletes now who are off for a period of time, especially if we've decided to forego any race goals, it's like, Hey, let's do enough cross training to maintain your sanity and a baseline level of fitness. But I don't want you to be too fit for when you return to running because the chances of you getting re-injured again are then very high. Um, So that's one thing I'm careful of as a coach. I do have athletes that have longer histories of injury and just can't handle higher volumes of running or they can't handle too much intensity. And that's back to what I was saying earlier. One of the great things about cross training is you can match some of the intensity that you would ordinarily get through running in the pool or on the bike and those workouts, they look pretty similar and you got to manipulate, you know, the time and all of that accordingly. But if you've got someone who can't handle more than one hard workout a week, um, and you want to get more work in than that, you can take advantage of these cross training modalities to address that and use it as a good complement to the running work that you're doing. The last part is using cross training, as a means of recovery. Um, Speaking for myself as a coach, 
I have some athletes who have a hard time running easy. And because of that, they're not really recovering from their key workouts and they get hurt or they burn out or they plateau or some combination of those things. And in those instances, I've been able to use cross training as their means of recovery saying, Hey, you know what? We're actually not going to run today. Um, but we're going to go on the bike and take it easy for 90 minutes, or you're going to get in the pool and you're going to run easy in the water for 45 minutes. Uh, and we're using it as purposeful cross training as a means of, um, kind of recovery, recuperation, restoration, uh, as a substitute for, you know, easy, easy miles, um, for someone who has shown that they're either not capable of running easy, too much running volume just really beats them up, uh, too much, or we just have to be really careful about picking our spots. That makes sense. I know sometimes we see you on the, on the bike with your wife too. Do you ever, uh, self prescribe <laughs> when you catch yourself, maybe going a little too hard on easy days or staring at the watch too much? Well, I, and my wife will call me out on this if she's listening to this podcast. I do not ride the bike with any regularity. We have a standing, well, she has a standing, I do have a bike over there. Uh, I've had that bike for 13 years now. It's a piece of junk, but I don't ride it enough to justify buying a new one. Um, but we have a standing ride once a year on her birthday. That is one of her birthday wishes every year is for me to go out and take a bike ride with her. And she doesn't go easy on me. We go like 60 miles, which I, I wouldn't recommend. But if you're only doing it once in a great while, uh, I think you can get away with it. But I don't, to answer your question, I don't use cross training, uh, as I've described for myself, cycling, pool running, alter G, elliptical, elliptical bike, whatever it may be, um, as a planned part of my, my own training. I have in the past, um, because I've been injury prone and I've been just a knucklehead, not able to control myself. And it's been very helpful in those instances, but knock on wood, I haven't had a major injury in over 10 years now because I've learned how to back myself off appropriately on the running days. I'm very careful about how much volume I run or how many hard workouts I pack into a week. And there's not a blanket answer to what's enough. In my case, I had to learn the hard way. I had three very major stress fractures in a very short period of time, two in my sacrum, one in my pubic symphysis that forced me to miss a lot of time running, forced me to do a lot of cross training, forced me to make adjustments to my program that I am pretty bullish about um, these days. But I... I don't like cross training. Uh, I should, I should add that in there as well. I think it's really valuable. I don't like it, but I have found the right balance of running for me, um, at my age at 37 and over the past 10 years that I can do sustainably. I know that I can get quality work in. I know I can recover from that quality work and I know I can do it sustainably. Great. All right. Next question. This one is from David. As a non-professional runner, how do you know when running is a good thing for you versus consuming too much of your time or attention? I say this to my athletes all the time and I remind myself of it on a weekly basis. Running has to occupy a 
healthy place in the rest of your life. It has to complement everything else that you've got going on personally, professionally, socially, and the inverse also has to be true. All of those other things that you're involved with outside of running, if it's a serious pursuit for you, whatever serious means, has to complement the running that you're doing. It's all training. Um, A lot of people think of training as just the workouts that they do. Now, training, training is everything. Training is your workouts. Training is how you recover. Training is what you're doing outside of the hour or two a day that you're, that you're working out outside of, of the races. Like all of those things have to complement one another because if running is throwing off the balance of the rest of your life, it's compromising your relationships. If it's affecting your performance at work, it's not occupying a healthy place and you've got to make some adjustments on the flip side. If you're, overworked, if your family and friends aren't supportive of your running, um, if you're not taking care of yourself outside of your workouts, like your running is not going to be fruitful and you're not going to thrive. So, you know, you've got to address things on that end too. So I think, you know, for, for non-professionals who still take their running very seriously, that's how I think of the balance. That makes sense. All right. Next question from Finn. Do you foresee some form of mountain ultra trail running becoming an Olympic sport within the next 50 years? Why or why not? 50 years. Long time. (laughs) Uh, That's what? 12 more Olympic games, I think. Um, I hope so. I don't know if we'll see it in the next five Olympic cycles. Uh, I'm hoping we'll catch cross country in the Olympics first. That would be a huge step. Um, I think cross country makes a lot of sense. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of perfect for, uh, for the Olympic format. I mean, there's a, there's an individual aspect to it. You'd have medalists, gold, silver, bronze, there's team scoring in there. So you'd have, you could have team scoring by country, uh, Internationally, it's run on a criterium style course. So you could have a 2K loop that is very spectator friendly, looks great on TV, could get a lot of people interested. I think it's a no brainer to start with putting cross country in there. Um, I think mountain, ultra, and trail sort of beyond that would be if we can get cross country in there, that would be the next uh, logical step. The, the reason I think, um, you know, it has a chance, I mean, we're going to start seeing, you know, in the Winter Olympics, we've seen like, X games type sports, like become Olympic sports. We're going to see some things in the summer games in Tokyo. And then in 2024 that are completely new, um, because IOC, uh, organizers are, they need to keep the Olympics relevant. They need to keep it interesting. They need to, to some degree cater to public interests and trail out mountain ultra stuff is still very niche, but it's growing. More people are participating in it, are interested in it. Um, so from that standpoint, you know, it could, it could gain some traction, but I think the, you know, the actual logistics of it, what would the distance be? What would the terrain look like? How would countries select their teams? Um, I mean, on some level, it's probably not different than how they'd select the track team and all of that. Um, but you know, there aren't, firm time standards, where do you cap the participation numbers, depending on where you are, where do you hold the event? Uh, here in the States, you would need to get permits uh, to run on public lands. It would be very expensive to construct a 
made for Olympics course, easy to do in cross country because you're only talking 2K and you can do that on a racetrack and bring some dirt in and bring it out. But for like an ultra distance type race, like do you do loops? Do you have one big course? Do you do it on a mountain? Is it, uh, you know, do you add an ultra distance road race? I mean, so I think there's just, there's a lot more to consider there. So I'm hopeful that it's something we would see in the Olympics. I mean, my, my bias would certainly go in that direction. Um, but I'm not, you know, I think with the current state of the Olympic games and some of the changes that they're thinking of making to, to track and field, I'm I'm not optimistic that'll happen anytime soon. Yeah, they seem to move pretty slowly on most changes that they make. And uh, with ultra mountain trail running being so new, it seems like we still need a, a few more years, maybe even decades to to really see it fit in nicely. Yeah, I mean, if you look at track and field, you've got the IAAF, which is the sports global governing body. You don't really have that in ultra trail right now. Um, so I think there's a lot that the sport needs to grow in a lot of ways before it can be seriously considered at the Olympic level. Definitely. All right. Next question for Mario from Jeff, not me though. Uh, what have been some of the most insightful, significant takeaways from interviewing the running community? These could be things that have profoundly changed you as a runner and a coach or as an individual or otherwise. Man, that's a loaded question. There are so many themes that cut through many of the interviews that I've done. An easier way for me to answer that is to talk about some of the guests who I've been fortunate enough to sit across from and have conversations with that have profoundly impacted me. The first one that comes to mind is Frank Gagliano, 82-year-old coach of the Hoka New Jersey New York Track Club. I went and spent half a day with him at his home in Rye, New York. We recorded the podcast in his office upstairs in his house. And he'd never been on a podcast before. I had to explain to him what it was. And fortunately, he was game for it. But he was just so genuine and open and honest in his responses to me. I was really interested to learn more about how he got into coaching and how he developed his philosophy and how he's been able to sustain it for the last, I mean, 60 years, basically 58 years. He's been, he's been coaching. I mean, you know, he could have retired 20 years ago and he's, he's still at it, still going to practice every week. And for him, it's all about family and relationships and caring for your athletes and making sure that the focus is on them, not you. And that had a real impact on me. As soon as I left there and got back on the train to go back to New York, I was writing notes in my notebook uh, from that conversation, which I don't typically do. So I know it had an impact on me from that level. And it really got me to think about my own coaching practice, which is how I spend most of my working time. I spend 70% of my time coaching athletes here in the Bay Area and virtually online and to really reconsider my relationships with my athletes and how I'm talking to them, not just about their workouts, but as people outside of that, which I think I, I do a good job of anyway, but it just like, it just kind of reinforced for me that that's what, that's what it's all about. You're playing a very significant role 
in your athletes lives and you ought to take that seriously. And he just cares so much. I mean, he started thinking about the earliest athletes that he's coached and the number of athletes that he's coached over the years and how the role that he's played in their lives and seeing them grown up and he's been coaching some of their kids and, and he started crying and that had a huge impact on me. I didn't expect that. Um, so, you know, personally for me, that was really impactful. And a lot of these conversations, I mean, selfishly, I have them because they're people I want to talk to and I want to learn something from, and I believe I can glean some insight from. So I'm in a fortunate position where now I can call most people up and get them to sit down and talk to me for a while. And I can ask them, you know, whatever I want. And they share these valuable gems of insight that impact me personally in the way that I live my life and do my work. Um, and uh, the Frank Gagliano conversation is, is the one that jumps out the most at me. Um, a couple of them have surprised me in a good way. This week's podcast with Katie Arnold, who won the Leadville 100 last year and just came out with a book called Running Home. Uh, she, well, the book is about her relationship with her dad and he passed away from cancer and how the grief that she felt after his passing led to some anxiety. And she, I, I wouldn't say found running, she'd been running, but she used running as a way to cope with that anxiety and with that grief. And for me, I lost my mom in a different manner suddenly, uh, whereas her dad had cancer and they knew he had a short period of time to live. But, you know, I've dealt with the loss of a parent. And for me, that was the first time that running was something more than a competitive pursuit. I could use running as a means of therapy. I could use running um, as my time to think things through, to... Um, you know, to just be out in, in nature. And, you know, it's very similar to how she described why she goes out into the mountains and why that's meaningful for her and, you know, why that helps or how that helps sustain her. So it just like, it really spoke to me because I, I had a similar experience myself. So, you know, those are, those are the two big ones, but at this point, I mean, I've had 70, I've had 70 guests and, um, which is, which is crazy to, to think about. And sometimes I'll look back at previous episodes. I'm like, Oh, I did have that person on. And then I'll go back into my notebook and, and see like, you know, what I, what I took away from that, that conversation. Um, but safe to say they've all had, they've all impacted me in, in some way because they're all people that I've been genuinely curious to talk to. And in a certain sense, by, you know, having them inviting you into their home or their office or you having them here in your home, you are forming a new relationship with them and finding kind of new ways to connect with them and bonds and, and back to your first point. Like, that's what it's all about, right? Well, and to what I was saying earlier about the first question about, like, what's uh, what do I miss about working for a place like Competitor? As I said, like, having you here and having a conversation at my kitchen table, like, this is awesome. Like, human connection is just something I don't get a lot of throughout the day. And for me, um, all the other stuff aside, the podcast has been that for me. Um, I get to sit down on a weekly basis with someone for an hour-ish and talk. And that's great. Um, and, and I wish 
we could all do more of that in our lives. And I'm fortunate that I have people that I, I can do that with outside of the podcast. But, you know, now I have it like it's it's scheduled almost like I have it and there and they're not always people that I have long and deep relationships with, even though I've had some people on that I've known for a long time. Um, but you get to know someone on a, on a completely different level when you sit down with them for an hour and there's no guard up and there's no restrictions on what you can talk about. And I've been fortunate that with a number of the guests that I've had on the show, I've stayed in touch with a lot of them. Gags is a great example. I mean, he and I talk probably every other week. He'll call me out of the blue and just ask how I'm doing. And I called him right before U.S. championships and wished him and his team luck, even though he wasn't flying out with them because um, he's not traveling much anymore. But, you know, we've we've stayed in touch. And I almost feel like in that specific instance, like I've, I've almost like gained a grandfather, um, just someone that I really look up to and who has taken an interest in me and knows that I'm a young coach who just wants to learn more. And he's been very open about just sharing his experience and his wisdom and his expertise with me. And it's like, I never could have predicted that, but it's pretty freaking awesome. Yeah, that's really special. All right, next question from Katie. Uh, I would love to hear about how you got into running yourself, some highs and lows along the way, and what's next for you. So we briefly touched on what's next for me, New York City Marathon. This fall, I will be in the sub-elite field, which I was fortunate enough to qualify for based on my 227 at CIM last year. I've never run New York. I've run, I think, 12 marathons now, four Bostons and a bunch of others, but never New York. And I've been out to that event probably 10 times covering it. I've had athletes racing it the last several years. Last fall, I was out on the course during the race, and I got to three different spots during it, seven and 23, I believe. And I was blown away by the atmosphere, by the crowds. And that was the first time I'd ever experienced it outside of the press room. And I said that, said that day, I, I've got to run this race next year. Um, if I can get in, I'm going to run this race next year. So I'm really excited to experience New York and race it hard and hopefully well. So that's what's next. Back to the beginning, I started running in high school as a way to keep in shape for basketball. And I've told this story in some other places before, but basketball was my first love. I grew up a Celtics fan. I grew up a fan of Holy Cross basketball, small division one school, Patriot League. Uh, Bob Cousy, who was a point guard for the Celtics, was Houdini of the Hardwood, was a Holy Cross grad. I wanted, was from Worcester, Massachusetts. I wanted to be the next Bob Cousy. And grew up playing basketball, played through junior high, played through my first two years of high school, had a coach named Jim White I'd met at a summer basketball camp at Clark University where my mom worked. And he told me that if I wanted to have the best basketball season of my life, my junior year, that I should run cross country because it would help my endurance and no one would be able to keep up with me and I wouldn't have to come out of the game. I was sold. So sure, I'll run cross country. Uh, went out for practice first week of school in the fall. And I mean, no cut sport. Didn't really care for it. Uh, running distance wasn't my thing, but I loved racing. I really loved racing. I loved that I didn't have to rely on anyone else. It was all on me. Um, whether or not I did well depended on the decisions that 
I made. And I really love that. And I love the head-to-head nature of the competition. It's very different from basketball, which you got five guys on the court and everyone plays a role. And we didn't have a great cross-country program. Uh, We raced, I think, twice a week. Um, We didn't run in between the races. We never did workouts. I think we ran two to three miles on the days that that we did run, but that was all fine with me. This was like a means to an end. Uh, But that year, my junior year, I missed qualifying for the state cross-country meet by one spot as an individual. The top two teams got to go to the state championship meet, and then the top I think three individuals who weren't on the top two teams got to go to the Massachusetts state cross country meet. And I missed by one spot. And that really lit a fire under my ass. I really was bummed that I didn't qualify for the state championship. And I remember declaring after that district meet, when I didn't get in that I was going to win the state championship the next year, which is a pretty bold statement for someone who just started running. I'd never run track and I couldn't even qualify for the state meet, much less win it. Um, I ended up playing basketball while I went out for basketball that winter, was on the team, decided like two weeks into the season that, well, I knew two weeks in the season I was going to ride the bench because we had a great point guard and Kevin Reed and my playing time was going to be next to nothing. Uh, quit the basketball team, joined indoor track and really haven't stopped running ever since the next summer I started, I actually started training for cross country. I'd met another local coach named Bill Gadare, who was with the central mass striders. And I would go to his track workouts in the summer on Tuesday night at Worcester state college. And I think I was running like 30 or 40 miles a week, which was 30, 40, 40 miles a week, more than I was doing the summer before and stayed healthy. Predictably I got fit and had a great, fall cross-country season and ended up qualifying for the state meet. Uh, Didn't win, but I finished seventh, which was uh, a race that I, in retrospect, was upset with because I didn't win and that was my goal. Um, But looking back at it now, something I'm really proud of. And yeah, ended up running uh, in college after that, Stonehill College Division Two, and was part of that program's rise to prominence in division two. When I got there, we were a laughing stock. The school had never qualified for nationals as a team, never had an individual qualify for nationals. Uh, I was the first to do so my sophomore year as an individual. Proudest moment was my senior year as a team. We qualified for the NCAA cross country championships. We finished 12th. Uh, I got all American and that was in 1990. Uh, sorry. That was 2003. And the school has qualified, the men's team has qualified for nationals and cross country every year since. Uh, they've had athletes qualifying for nationals on the track every year since. Uh, there are now scholarships at the school. The caliber of athlete that's going in there is a lot higher and just uh, a you know, legacy that I'm proud to have played a, a small part in. And then, yeah, uh, that was that was 2004 and I graduated from school and I, I've never stopped. I, I graduated college knowing that I wanted to do something in running. 
um, I wanted to be a professional runner, number mm-hmm. one. Um, I tried getting into like Hanson's Brooks and Zap Fitness and a couple other programs, but I wasn't quite fast enough out of school. Um, so that, that never materialized, but I always knew that I wanted to do something in running. I joked that in college I majored in cross country and I minored in track. I actually majored in philosophy and minored in psychology, but the joke was that I majored in cross country, I minored in track, and that I was going to do something in, in running. Didn't know what that was once I graduated from school, but I've always been one of those guys who's figured things out as he's, as he's gone along and I'm okay with uncertainty and adjusting and all of that. And, uh, as I was saying earlier, at at some point I knew that I always wanted to work for myself and I realized that what I wanted to do was coach and write. And I'm in a fortunate position now where that's what I'm doing. Just to follow up, maybe post collegiately mm-hmm. lowest of lows, which I'm sure you've turned into a positive uh, somehow, and then maybe also the highest of highs. Lowest of lows was my struggles with disordered eating after college. Uh, I had this thought in my head that if I wanted to be one of the best distance runners in the country, I had to look like the best distance runners of the country. And it's not as easy to do now, but back in the early two thousands, I had, you know, this high school training profile guide and it had each athletes like height and weight in there. You could go on a school's athletic roster and their height and weight was in there. And I'm five, eight. And I think when I graduated school, I weighed 140 pounds and that was pretty healthy weight for me. I never had any, any issues with eating or body image and I was running well, but I thought that I needed to be 120 pounds, um, because that's what I saw on the stat sheets for the guys who were making a living out of this. They were, you know, they were small. I just felt like I was too big and, uh, that sent me down a pretty, dark spiral of of disordered eating and body image issues. And, you know, long story short, I got down to 124 pounds and I didn't do that in a very gradual or safe way. And honestly, it's just way too light for me. Um, And I got three stress fractures as a result and number of other issues that I, I still deal with to some degree today. And, my performance suffered and sucked and, uh, my relationship with running and myself was just not in a good place. Like I was in a pretty low place. I didn't have a lot of great relationships in my life. I placed all this importance on running that soured my relationship with it. Uh, what I was saying earlier about running, fitting into and supporting the rest of your life, it certainly was not doing that for me. And, you know, for a while after that, what I was doing the rest of my life wasn't supporting my running. So I had to figure that out. Um, so that was definitely the, the lowest moment, but it also gave me the most perspective and it's informed my perspective now as an athlete, as I said, I've been able to stay healthy for the past 10 plus years. I have a much better relationship with eating food, my body image. Um, and I'm fortunate because a, a lot of people continue to struggle with that for a long period of time, but I've been able to use that experience in my coaching and in my writing to help other people who are dealing with similar things. So that lowest low, uh, while I wouldn't wish it upon anyone has also given me a perspective that I I wouldn't have gotten otherwise. I love that. That's awesome. Was there a high, high? Yeah. High, high, (laughs) uh, high, high. That's a, 
That's a good question. Yeah, because I feel like they've I feel like they've changed. Uh, well, I've had I've had a few of them like over over the years. The most recent one was setting a marathon personal best last fall at CIM. Uh, if you've been reading the shakeout for a while, I put up that finish line photo and that was just pure emotion. And I, I'm getting like goosebumps, like thinking about it right now because it was just pure emotion. Like I hadn't planned to do that, but when I saw the clock and I saw 227 something, uh, and my previous PR was 228, 25. And I knew that I had, it was just, the, it was the best feeling. It'd been 11 years, uh, since I, since I had set that that PR and, you know, I tried a couple other times to take it down and couldn't do it. And last fall at CIM, it all came together at 36 years old and it was pretty dang cool feeling. Inspiring stuff. All right. Next question from Peter. He would love to hear what you recommend marathoners do, if anything, for strength training. A lot of great questions. I like this one because my relationship with strength training has evolved over the years. Like cross training, I don't really like strength training. I hate going to the gym. Some of that's convenience. Uh, Some of that is I'm just not a very strong guy. So when you don't feel competent at something, you tend not to enjoy it very much. Um, In college, we were required to go to the gym and do strength workouts, I think once or twice a week. And I, I always hated it. Um, I was afraid of getting big. I didn't really understand how it translated into my running because I had never dealt with injuries at the time. And it wasn't until a few years ago that the light bulb really went off for me. And it went off for me first as an athlete myself. Um, as I've, gotten older and I've been running competitively now for 22 years. I just don't run as much volume as I used to. And I have a good lifetime base of volume that I can, I can draw from, but I don't feel like mileage is something I respond very well to. Uh, but I knew that I needed to become a better athlete and work on my athleticism, work on my general strength because I came to believe that the better athlete I could become, you know, I could still become a better runner and I could be a more injury resilient runner. And, uh, started going to the gym a few years ago with Nate Helming, mutual friend of ours. He's a great strength coach. He's been a guest on the podcast, talked about the benefits of strength training and really opened my eyes to the benefits of strength training from an injury prevention standpoint, uh, from an athleticism standpoint, Uh, and then, and then also just from like a pure, like strength standpoint. So last fall is a good example. I PR'd at CIM, as I just described, it was the least amount of mileage I've ever run in the 10 weeks before a marathon. It was also the most consistent I've ever been with strength training. I was in the gym with Nate every week. I was doing supplementary stuff on my own and I've never felt better in the last 10 K of a marathon. And I think that is due to, yes, my, my lifetime, base and accumulation of mileage certainly comes in handy in an aerobic event like the marathon uh, and experience does as well. But I, I think a big part of it was the strength work that I did because mechanically I felt a lot more sound. My body was much more resilient and was able to handle the demands of the marathon. And I've, you know, so, so as a self experimenter, like I've just, I've just seen, it wasn't just that one race. Like I've just, I've noticed this effect in my training and racing in general over the last few years. But as a coach, I prescribe it to most of my athletes who don't have a program that they're already following because 
running does not make you a better athlete, makes you a better runner. And that's important for running and should always be prioritized. But, um, I think of the athletes that I coach, not as I don't coach runners. I coach athletes who specialize in running. So, you know, strength training is a way to improve your general strength, your overall athleticism, your overall resilience. And it's just the better athlete that you can be, the further you can take your potential in running. You can make, if you can make yourself stronger, you can get your muscles to generate more force. Uh, you're going to run faster. Um, if you can back to the car analogy, if you can strengthen that frame, you can really reinforce it. Uh, it's going to be better. It's, it can better support the engine, uh, and that engine we're going to develop through the actual running work. Um, but you know, I, I learned myself like pretty early on after college and I've seen it with athletes that I coach. Like if, if the engine is stronger than the frame, the frame is eventually going to crack. And if the frame is cracked and it can't support the engine, you can't train your potential. If you can't train your potential, you can't race to your potential. Um, so for me, like strength training has become a vital component of my and my athletes overall training programs. And if you look at all the top runners in the world, 99.9% of them are strength training to some degree. If they're part of one of the bigger groups here in the U S or even internationally in Kenya, they have a strength coach and they're in the gym at different times of the year, emphasizing different things depending on where they are in their training, but it is not something that they are glancing over or neglecting. And it doesn't take a lot. Um, there are a number of ways that you can do it. I go to the gym once a week for an hour and then I do 15, 20 minutes, two other times a week. And you know, that covers my basis pretty good, but you can use in your own body weight, you could spend 10 to 15 minutes, three times a week, do that consistently enough. You're gonna be much better off than if you're doing nothing. So I think it's a, I think it's a crucial component for any and every runner to include in their training program. And you don't even have to go to the gym to do it, right? Just at home. Yeah, just at home. You can do an effective strength training workout in your living room in front of the TV while you're waiting for dinner to cook. It doesn't take very long at all. Perfect. No excuses. All right, next question. Um, How many more we got? Three more. Okay, let's do them all. Okay. Um, this one has no name on it. I primarily train race on the roads and want to set a half PR this fall to lay the foundation for a spring Boston qualifier attempt. Over the coming months, I'm interested in incorporating some trail running into my schedule to build strength and engage different muscle groups. I may even try a race or two, nothing too long or technical. What would be the best way to factor trail miles into my schedule, and what tips do you have for an experienced roadrunner looking to supplement his training with trail running? Okay, so first part of that, love trails, have a lot of them here in my backyard in Marin County. I've really spent a lot of time on them in the five years that I've lived up here. And I think amongst other things that we've already discussed have helped me to become a better, stronger, more well-rounded runner. So for someone, here we are summer of 2019, someone who's looking to run a fast half marathon in spring of 2020, you've got time this fall, you could get on the trails, maybe set a couple races that you want to use as targets on the trail, shorter ones, maybe 10K to half marathon or so. You're not chasing time, but presumably getting on the trails, you are running on varied terrain. You are doing more uphill running than you would 
on the roads and there are steeper grades both up and down that are challenging you in different ways, um, you know, that is going to make you a stronger runner. Uh, and as we were talking about with strength training, like having that athletic foundation just gives you a bigger, more diverse toolbox that you can, you know, that you can use moving forward. So I would say, you know, this summer, get on the trails as much this summer, fall, get on the trails as much as you can, you know, train like you would for a half marathon, but emphasize effort over pace. Um, you're not really chasing splits at all. Realize you're going to sacrifice some turnover. That's going to be important for chasing your half marathon PR on the roads in the spring. Um, but that's okay. Like your, your main goal is just to become a better athlete and to build more strength on the trails. And you're going to, if you can do that pretty consistently through the fall, by the time the calendar turns in the spring, uh, it might take you a little while to just get your rhythm back. Uh, if you've been doing mostly trails and not a lot of like flatter, faster type of running, but it's not going to take more than like four to six weeks for that to come back. And I think you're going to see gains that you wouldn't have realized otherwise. Um, when you make that transition in the spring, you can still run on trails. I think they're great for getting on softer surfaces. It's a little bit easier on your body in that way. Time passes a little quicker, at least for me it does, on the trails. It's easier, more enjoyable. It, it's more enjoyable for easy runs. Um, so, you know, getting on flatter, more gentle trails where you're not trying to do anything specific, it's it's really just for easy running and restoration, um, is going to be a good complement to the increased road running and faster track work, etc. And the second part of that question was... Yeah, so worry maybe less about miles and just time on feet when it comes to trails? Yeah, with trails, it's it's more about time and effort than it is about miles and splits. And a seven-minute mile on the roads at the same effort on a hilly trail might be like nine and a half minutes. Um, so you really can't put too much stock in the watch. It's, it's all about the effort. It makes sense. All right. Uh, this one's from Drew. What is the difference between a threshold tempo and critical velocity run? How do I incorporate these into my training? So tempo threshold, depending on how you want to define threshold, they're not too dissimilar. They are sustained efforts over a prolonged period of time. I call it uncomfortably, comfortably uncomfortable running and classic tempo run. I like to make this as relatable as possible when I'm explaining it. So for me, when I'm talking about tempo, those longer sustained efforts, I use generally two means of describing it, half marathon pace and marathon pace. So marathon pace is obviously the pace that you pace or effort that you could run for full marathon distance, half marathon, uh, for the half marathon distance. Usually there's, depending on the athlete, there can be a 10 to maybe 30 second difference, you know, between the two, but it's a, you know, regardless it's a pace that you can run for a sustained amount of time. Like the classic tempo run, Greg McMillan defines it as like your 60 minute race pace. Um, so for like very, very fast elite, uh, athletes, that's like their half marathon more or less like the The men are running, you know, 60 to 65 women are running like, you know, 65 to 75, like somewhere in that range. So that's why I always use like half marathon effort as a, as a good gauge for a, a tempo run. Um, so for a race that's taking you between an hour and 80 minutes, you know, that's running sustainably hard at that pace for 20 to 
you know, 40 or 50 minutes, depending on, on your experience level. I think that's the, the easiest way to describe that. Now you can take it all the way down to like, um, a biological level where, you know, you're saying like, oh, it's when your blood hits like blah, 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 millimoles. We're not going to get into that. I mean, most, most people just don't think that way. Um, I like to make it as relatable to something that you're training for and an effort that you can wrap your head around as I possibly can. So that's how I define like tempo threshold. They're really not too, too different in, in my opinion. Critical velocity um, is a term that, I'm going to attribute it to him, but I, I don't think he actually invented it. There's a coach um, named Tom Schwartz out of Boulder, Colorado. He's called the Tin Man. He's got the Tin Man Elite. Uh, he's going for a PhD in uh, exercise science. He defines critical velocity um, as 90 to 95% of VO2 max. And he says that's like the, you know, whereas Greg McMillan says the classic tempo run is that pace that you can hold for about 60 minutes. Um Tin Man says that your critical velocity is the pace that someone can hold for 30 to 35 minutes. So for a faster runner, that's more or less their 10K pace. Um, you know, so for for a slow runner, that might be their their 5K pace, but it's like that effort that you can hold for 30, 35 minutes. Um, critical velocity training, it's kind of all the rage right now. That's like what the Tin Man elite group has based a lot of their program off of. Um it's, it's actually like, there's, I don't think there's any magic intensity, but it's a great intensity because it's not easy. You have to work hard to run at that effort for two minutes, three minutes, five minutes, eight minute chunks, whatever it may be. Um, obviously if you're running the full 30, 35, like that's the race, but if you're doing like 30 to 35 minutes of work, uh, in, three, five, eight minute chunks, 10, maybe whatever it may be, or some percentage of 30, 35 minutes of that intensity, like that's your critical velocity. Um, so it's hard work. Um, but it's not so hard that it really beats the crap out of you, like a VO two max workout that I don't think, uh, whoever asked that question included VO two max, but VO two max is like basically like three K five K type work. It's like the pace that you can hold for maybe seven to 15 minutes, um, you know, somewhere in that range or 18 minutes, um, depending on, on your speed. And it's like, you can only do so much work at that intensity before you just can't do as much. And if you do too much, like it just, it beats you up. But that, that critical velocity pace and like tempo threshold type stuff, it's work. Um, but the stress on the body is not nearly as much as like VO2 max and certainly not as much as like flat out sprinting. So you can recover from it relatively quickly when you're fit, which means you can do a lot like your capacity at, at that intensity is, is pretty high. You can just, you can do a lot of work at that, uh, at that intensity. If you do a lot of work at that intensity, um, and I don't think you should only do work at that intensity, but if you do a lot of work at that intensity, you're going to get fit and that's going to improve, you know, not just your 10 K fitness, but it's also going to help make you more efficient at that, like kind of tempo threshold marathon type pace. Uh, it's going to make you stronger when it comes to your ability to handle VO two max type workout. So it's like a kind of good, like in the middle type intensity that most people can do a lot of work at. Um, but as it's defined, it's like 90, 95% of your VO two max or like the pace that most people can hold for 30 to 35 minutes in a race. 
And for someone like Drew, who maybe isn't incorporating any of these into his current training plan, how would you suggest, um, you know, for your average runner kind of getting that into their, into their weekly schedule? So I think it's important to be honest with yourself and understand what it is you're trying to accomplish with your training. Uh, are you training for a marathon? You train for half marathon, 10K, 5K. Uh, do you just generally want to be pretty fit and have some good range and doing all that that sort of stuff? Because that, you know, the answer to that question is going to affect how you lay out your program and, you know, how you're going to periodize it over, over um, an entire training block. But I would say, like, for me, my coaching philosophy is that you should never get too far away from any of the key training elements. That's speed, that's strength, that's stamina. And I would be incorporating some amount of VO2 max work, critical velocity type work, tempo slash threshold type work at all times. And if I'm training for you know, longer races, say half marathon, marathon, I'm probably putting more of an emphasis on that kind of like, you know, critical velocity threshold tempo type work, especially in the, you know, say two to eight, 10 weeks before a race. And then if I'm focusing more on like 5k, 10k, that type of stuff, that longer stuff is probably going to be, well, the tempo threshold stuff is going to be more, you know, kind of support complementary. Whereas like we'll put a little more emphasis mostly on the critical velocity. Cause as we were saying earlier, like you can do a lot of work at that intensity with like more regular bouts of like VO two max work. So, I mean, I give this answer a lot when it comes to training related question. It depends. Um, nobody likes that answer, but it really depends. And for me, um, a big reason why I coach individual athletes is just because of that. It, it depends. Like, what are you going to have this person do? Well, you know, it, de- it depends on their, what they want to accomplish, what their background is, um, you know, what they've been up to the last like three months. I mean, I've all the time I've got multiple people training for the same event and, you know, we'll have two very different looking training programs leading up to that event, depending on the person and who they are and where they've been and what they're trying to accomplish. What else they have going on in life. Yeah, exactly. Well, as we talked about earlier, like it's a very holistic approach because, you know, if you're a professional athlete and your job is to perform at races and to live the athlete lifestyle, you can handle or you should have more time to handle more work and running because that is, you know, that is, that is your job. It, it kind of addresses one of those, you know, one of those things versus someone who might be working, you know, 50 hours a week and has like two hour commute each day and three kids at home. Like they're just not going to be able to handle as much. And I mean, their goals are going to be very different, but you know, and, and there's going to be some very fundamental things in their programs that might look, you know, pretty similar, but you know, the amount of training that they can do, how long it takes them to recover between workouts, uh, how long of a buildup they need is, is going to vary depending on any number of factors. Well, that's great. I think that's it for uh, the first AMA. We went about, Oh, we went over an hour. Wow. Um, that was pretty good. I wasn't sure if we were going to make it 40 minutes or 60 minutes, but that was super fun. Good list of questions. It was fun. As I was saying earlier, just sitting here and chatting with you, granted you were, the question asker um but yeah some great follow-ups as well which i appreciate so thank you yeah well thanks for having me it was super fun mario all right next time you're up here in marin we'll have to do this again sounds like a plan 
right, we did it. Really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thank you so much for listening in and being a part of this journey with me. If you'd like to show your support for the podcast, please tell all your friends and followers about it on your preferred social media platform and encourage them to tune in. You can also send me feedback directly on Twitter. It's probably the best way at my name. That's just Mario Fraioli. Uh, You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on. That helps new listeners to discover the show. If you want, you can also support my work directly on Patreon by going to themorningshakeout.com slash support. Thank you so much to everyone who supported the show in one form or another already. It really means a lot to me. Before we wrap up, I'd also like to thank my man John Summerford of bearsrecords.com. He takes care of my audio needs for the show, including all the music, which he produces himself. And he's a big part of my small team here at The Morning Shakeout. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. And you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's all I've got. I'm Mario Fraioli, and you've been listening to the Morning Shakeout Podcast.